Well, surely we're going to be restarting our series in the book of Romans after our Christmas break. And we left the end of last year, finishing Romans chapter 8. And we're going in to the start of chapter 9. So we're going to read God's word together. Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 13. So if you've got a Bible, or if you've got it on your phone, you want to head towards Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 13. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wished that myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, and the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants. They are all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Let's pray for Phil before he comes and shares God's word with us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word that is true, that is powerful. And Lord, thank you for this passage here in Romans. And Father God, I pray you give us uh, open hearts, open ears to hear what you have to say to us this morning. Father God, please use Phil as he speaks to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. James, thanks so much uh, for, for leading us. Well, it seems an age since early December when we were last in Romans, um, and a lot has happened since. We've had a Christmas to remember um, for all the wrong reasons, and, and now we're back in lockdown. But that doesn't stop us from being together now, reading God's word, so that we can know our God better even in these times. So let's look at our passage this morning. And if you could have your Bibles open then, that would be great. We saw at the end of last term series in Romans that because, of our salva- because our salvation is built on Jesus' death and resurrection alone, nothing can separate us from his love. I, I just love all the-, the songs that we've sung this morning because they underline that great truth. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. 
And Romans 8, verse 38 to 39 uh, says this, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And they're fantastic words, uh, and such a crescendo of praise, and yet chapter 9 suddenly changes direction. Rather than looking at the salvation that Christ has won for his children, Paul's attention is turned to those who reject Jesus. And we're tempted to ask, well, why, why does this direction change so suddenly? And it might help um, to put yourself into this imaginary scenario. You've been on an ocean cruise, but suddenly the ship begins to sink, and, and to cut an illustration short, you find yourself floundering in the water, crying out for help. And just as you, as you begin to slowly sink under, a, a rescuer appears with a rope, and they, they, they wrap the rope around you and pull you to safety into a lifeboat. And as you're, as you're pulled onto the lifeboat, massive emotions overwhelm you. Relief. Huge relief, big hugs and kisses all round. What would have happened if that rescue had arrived a minute later? And gratitude and indebtedness. My goodness, they saw that, that, that need in time and saved you. And, and just, wow, I'll take them out for a meal when we're finally home. But then comes fear. What about the others? What about family and friends? The, the rescue's not yet finished. There are others in the water. What about them? Now, that's a helpful illustration that shows us why Paul's thinking changes direction from the great crescendo of chapter 8, and why he turns to the question of other people, people around him, his fellow countrymen, who need to hear and respond to the gospel of Jesus. And so there are two things to note this morning in our passage. The first point is, remember the lost. Remember the lost. Paul begins this chapter by expressing his anguish and pain because his fellow Jews around him still reject Jesus. Let me read verse 1 and 2 to you. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. It's a pain made worse by the fact that God has revealed so much of his love and salvation to the Jews over the course of thousands of years. That's what he's saying in verses 4 and 5. He says this, theirs, meaning his, his countrymen, the Jews, theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the hum human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised Amen. It's a heart-wrenching moment in the book of Romans, and a massive contrast, as I've said, to the joy of chapter 8. Paul's pain is caused by his fellow Jews' rejection of the gospel, despite the fact that through the ages, God had revealed more of himself to the Jewish people than any other nation, had uh, promised himself and his love to them more than any other nation, and revealed his word to them more than any other nation. And Paul lists out all the ways that God's revelation had come to them. So it's not just that God's divine glory was revealed to them through the burning bush, 
It's that he gave his law as well, his perfect law. And it's not just that he just gave them the law. He also met with them in a great cloud in the tent of meeting. That cloud and that tent were a symbol of his physical presence amongst the people. And that tent became a temple. And again, the temple was filled with the cloud of the glory of God. What revelation. And it's not just as if he gave them the temple, but he gave priests and kings and prophets again and again and again to reveal his word to them and to show them his love for them. All this until God came in person and died for their sins and the sins of the world. And yet in spite of all the way that God has revealed himself to them, they still rejected him. And it's a painful mystery for Paul. Now sadly, many of us know that pain too. That, that we've have, we have family or friends whom we love dearly. And we know they've heard the gospel message and yet they still continue to reject it. I once had a school friend um, with whom I shared, I shared the gospel. I told him about Jesus. I told him about the love of God for us. And he wanted to trust in Jesus. But he decided not to in the end because he still wanted to have his fun before he did God. And then tragically, three months later, he was killed in a jet ski accident. And as far as I'm aware, he died rejecting the gospel. And I'm sure many of us have similar stories of of loved ones and people we know who have turned away from Jesus or who have died rejecting the good news of Jesus. But here is a great truth in these verses. In the middle of the heartbreak, they're a reminder that we're not alone in this pain. That whilst we weep at people around us rejecting the gospel, God weeps too. And we know that because God loves this world. We know he loves this world because of the way that he's generously revealed himself in history. But people still reject God's word. And the anguish we see in this passage echoes the anguish that Jesus expresses when he weeps outside Jerusalem in Luke 19. You were told, Luke Luke tells us, it's it's almost a graphic graphic story, how how Jesus comes um, to to a, a, a hill overlooking Jerusalem. And there he breaks down weeping. And he cries out, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you've rejected me. You rejected your God, you will reject your Messiah. He knew that their hearts would be hard. He knew that in spite of all that he had done and said, they would not listen to him and they would, try and kill, they would eventually kill him. And Christ's pain there shows us that God is moved by those who reject his gospel. And that God reaches out to them continuously with the gospel. And today, through his church, he reaches out to the lost. And I hope it helps us as we too look at the lost loved ones and friends around us who haven't accepted the good news. And I hope it helps us by being a comfort to us. The good news continues to go out to the lost around us. 
but also an encouragement. God weeps and God goes, and, and, and therefore we're to keep reaching out just as God does, and to keep weeping just as God, God, God does, and to have his compassion for those around us just as God does. And so it's right for Paul to pause and reflect on his fellow countrymen who continue to reject Jesus. And whilst it's good to lose ourselves in the joy of salvation and the future glory of an eternity with Jesus, as chapter 8 does, here it's also good to be reminded that we mustn't lose Christ's compassion for the lost around us. That the work of the church is not finished yet, and we know that because Christ has not returned. And for every minute, every second, every hour, every day that Christ leaves before he returns, that is, that, is, that is time when people are turning to him in wonder, love, and praise and accepting his rescue. So just like in the rescue illustration I used at the start, because the lifeboat has rescued us, it doesn't mean the lifeboat has finished its work. Rather, the rescue must go on. Our question has simply to be this. How can I help? How can I help? So Paul starts this section of the book by remembering the lost and challenging the Christians in Rome to reflect on God's compassion. And so not to lose hope for the lost around them, but rather to take comfort in God's heart and God's timing and to act on that compassion and act on that comfort and to seek ways to reach out to the lost just as God does. But the second thing that this passage teaches us is that God's word never fails. God's word never fails. Paul takes a moment in, a, in, in the next few verses to explain this a little bit more. You see, if the Jews have rejected God in spite of all the revelation they've received, does that mean, therefore, that God's word has failed? That's the implied question being asked in verse 6. And Paul's answer is an emphatic no. God's word has not failed. God's word is still his power to save. Look at verse 6 again with me. It's not as though God's word has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. That's his explanation. He starts off by explaining when we think about the nation of Israel... We can't simply say that all racial descendants of Abraham are believers in his promise. So, for example, not everybody whose surname is Jones support Welsh rugby and can sing beautiful four-part harmony. Instead, we have to understand what the Bible truly means by Israel. You see, throughout the Old Testament, it becomes clear that not all who are born racial Israelites, trusted in God's promise to save them from their sins. That's what verse 8 says. In other words, it's not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. And we know as we read through our Old Testament, not all racial Israelites entered into a relationship with God. Because not all who were Israelites believed in God's promises. We know that. 
And similarly, there are examples in the Bible of people who were not born racial Israelites, but who did believe in the promises of God and were then called Israelites as of, uh, uh, after that. Women like Tamar and Ruth. These women were true Israel in spite of their race. So Paul points out that a spiritual faith and trust in God's promises have always been necessary in order to be called Israel. And that's the basis of him saying God's word has not failed. God's word has always been working to bring true Israel into a relationship with him. And that relationship was based on faith, not anything else like race. But then Paul explains further in verses 10 to 13, and it shows that not always, sorry, Paul explains further in verses 10 to 13 and shows not all Israel will be saved because God chooses those who listen to his word. So he uses in verse 10 the example of Jacob and Esau. Both those boys were Israelites. They were Isaac's boys. Not only that, they were conceived at the same time to the same mother, so there's nothing about them that made one better than the other. And yet, only one of them entered into a relationship with God. Jacob, and not Esau, believed God, and he became the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. In fact, later on, God actually changed Jacob's name to Israel to underline that Jacob had a special relationship with God. And then Paul tells us the reason for God's special relationship with Jacob. Look at verse 11 and 12. Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. God's special relationship with Jacob was because God chose him. And that's underlined in verse 13. In verse 13, uh, Paul quotes from Malachi chapter 1, and he says, look, it's, it's in, in Scripture, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. Now, now that's... Uh, that's a relative term. Uh, we're not to take it literally. It's, it's, it's what's the word, idiomatic. And the contrast is the full blessings of, Jake, of God on Jacob and not the full blessings of God on Esau. So Paul is basically saying that before the boys were born, Rebecca was told that God had chosen to bless Jacob and not Esau. And the point is underlined by verse 12. There was nothing these boys had done Nothing these boys would do. That would be the basis of God's choice. Fundamentally, the reason for Jacob being blessed was because, was because God had chosen him, nothing more. And that takes us back to the original question behind verse 6. Has God's word failed? If people don't respond to God's revelation, well, the answer is no. 
God's word hasn't failed when it goes to the Jews and the Jews reject it. And God's word hasn't failed when it goes to the world and the world rejects it. God's word hasn't failed when the word goes to our loved ones and our friends and our family and they reject it because the reason people accept the gospel is that God in his grace and mercy chooses his people into a relationship with himself. Now, I realize this teaching and the technical term is election is something that's difficult for us to get our heads around. Some of us may be asking, if God chooses us, are we still responsible for the way we respond to the gospel? And the answer mysteriously is yes. So it's true that God chooses his children, just like he chose Jacob and not Esau. Whilst at the same time, in the parable of the sower, the sower is generous with the seed, isn't he? The seed which is God's word. He sows the seed on all hearts. Some hearts accept the gospel and believe, but many don't. And the mystery is this. God chooses his children. And yet all who hear the gospel have a responsibility to respond to it. And it leaves a tension. A tension between God's choice and our responsibility to respond to God's word. No one knows how it works. It's a mystery. And ultimately, and humbly, we have to leave it to God. However, the reason why Paul makes such a point about God choosing us to be in his kingdom is that ultimately it shows us we have no specialness of our own. Nothing in and of ourselves that gives us merit before God. And it means we can't look down on anybody in this world, based on race or status or special revelation, like the Jews of Paul's time were doing. Instead, we're God's children because God has chosen us. And listen, to be fair to the Jews of Paul's day, they didn't just wake up one morning thinking they were better than everyone else because they thought that because of their race. No, no, their wrong assumption grew over the years into a cultural belief. And the scary thing is, when we look at the history of the church over the past 2,000 years, that Jewish way of thinking has often made its way into Christian thinking. And we must be careful of it. So, so for example, Christian parents... Can, can sometimes fall into the danger of assuming that because we are Christians and in a relationship with God, well, our children will be. And that assumption can cause a lot of damage. On one hand, it can be damaging to assume that and then see our children reject the gospel. Yes, we have the mandate to share the gospel with our children, and and I pray that we do, faithfully and carefully, with as uh, uh, many opportunities as we can. But the truth is, because God chooses us into his kingdom, we're not to blame ourselves when our children reject Jesus. And definitely, we're not to feel judged for not having Christian children. Do you know, I've known pastors who have left the ministry because their children are not Christians. And elders who have felt inferior somehow for it. You and I know whether we're sharing the gospel faithfully with our children. And if we are, then we have to give them into the hands of God 
who daily has compassion on the lost, as we've seen at the beginning of this passage. And we keep praying faithfully, knowing that just because they rejected the gospel at the moment, it doesn't mean that all hope is lost. On the other hand, another consequence of assuming that because we're Christians, our children will become Christians, another consequence is that, and I say this with care, it can lead to spiritually lazy parenting. What I mean by that is parenting that puts God on the back burner and sports and entertainment and life just get busier and busier and we forget the need to share the gospel constantly with our children because we just assume they'll be okay. We, 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 we neglect church fellowship. We neglect reading the Bible with them. We, we forget to pray for them daily through, and constantly repeat the truth of the gospel with them. And the irony of this kind of false assurance is that rather than spiritually alive children that we assume they are, they grow up to be wonderfully moral, but spiritually dead because of the assumptions we've made about their knowledge of the gospel. And look, I I say this carefully at this time because I know that as parents, our lives have been utterly turned upside down. We've been asked to become teachers, sports coaches, playmates, counsellors, alongside just being regular mum and dad, and it is exhausting. So perhaps every day, every day to be reading the Bible and talking to them about Jesus just feels like one job too many. But can I encourage you just to think about how we might set aside 10 minutes at some point in the day to read the Bible and to pray with our children, and to set aside time personally to read the Bible for ourselves and to pray for our children in our own quiet times, and to make that learning about Jesus with them as important as brushing teeth or finishing off the day's lessons. Look, if you're struggling to know what resources to use, then please give us a call or, or drop us an email at the office We'd love to help. I know Charis is working on a resource list um, to share with parents, so we can send that out to you when it's ready. But please do, if you can't wait for that, do just uh, drop us an email or or give us a call at the office. There are shed loads of things that we'd like um, to to recommend uh, to help you with this work, uh, with the lost in our homes. Now listen, these are truths that are tough to think through, And they're inevitably going to need some time to think through on our own. In the next half of the chapter, Paul addresses another question. He asks the question, is it fair for God to choose his people? And if you're asking that question, then do two things for me. The first is, look back on our verse for the year and understand the truth that God loves us. And that God is love. The very character of God is love. And then read through the whole chapter 9 and listen out for the tone of it. The doctrine of election is a humble doctrine. And that humility is reflected in the whole tone of this chapter. And as you reflect on those two things, even though the doctrine of election might seem confusing, 
What is never confusing is the character and the love of our precious God and Father. We're going to look at this once again next week. But till then, do you know, let's just humbly praise God that salvation belongs to the Lord and it's not anything we can boast about. Let's praise God that in his great, great, great comprehension of the universe, the truth is that the gospel still goes and grows. And people every day, day and night, every second of of every hour, people are bowing the knee before Jesus Christ and declaring him Lord and Master. There is the compassion of our God. There is the great doctrine of election at work that the lost are being saved, that the blind are seeing, that our God is constantly reaching out day after day after day. And therefore, we can remember the lost as we praise God. And and, uh, as as Rico Tice says all the time, uh, we, we talk to God about people and talk to people about God. That's our mandate as the church. And yes, these times are difficult, aren't they? It feels so frustrating that we uh, struggle to be able to talk to people about God in these times. But do you know what? It does not stop us from praying about people and seeking God's face and seeking his compassion on the lost around us and in our homes and around us in, in, in the loved ones that we know and our friends and family. And therefore, we can humbly thank him for the great revelation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that has come to us and has turned our hearts towards him and is reaching out around us. That men and women, boys and girls, might believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who came to this world, who died and rose again, that we might enter into the love of God personally. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we understand and know that this is sometimes such a confusing doctrine, but Lord God, we praise you for the comfort that we have in knowing that your work is not finished. Your church is being called day after day after day into, um, in, into doing your work, to reaching out to the lost around us. We praise you, Lord God, that your heart still weeps for the lost who reject your word. And we praise you, Lord God, that you are still working to call the lost into a relationship with you. Father, in many ways, these these truths are confusing. They are confusingly and confusing and seemingly sometimes contradictory. But Lord God, we praise you that your comprehension is beyond ours. And what is confusing to us makes sense to you. So Father, humbly, we bow the knee this morning. Fill us with compassion for the lost, we pray. Fill us with joy for your salvation, we ask. Lord God, may you continue to reveal your word and continue to call many into your kingdom for your glory's sake. Amen.